So as Jay mentioned earlier, today's reading is from Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. When I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell the people, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, O Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant. Until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged. Until the Lord has sent everyone far away, and the land is utterly forsaken. And though the tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and the oak leave stumps, when they are cut, out, or cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, and do sit down. And before we begin, let's ask for God's help to understand this glorious passage. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are a speaking God, and so we pray that the things that Isaiah saw some 2,700 years ago would be very real to us this morning. Speak deeply into each one of our hearts this morning, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Friends, let me ask you this morning as we begin, how are you doing with serving Jesus? I mean that in the broadest sense. It could be in church, perhaps serving in the kids, with the kids, or the, I guess maybe not you guys, since we're not serving with the kids, we're in here. Uh, could be leading a small group. Could be coming early to set up for this meeting. How are you doing serving Jesus? But not just formally for church. How are you doing outside of this time as a Christian parent, as a Christian employee or a Christian student, as a Christian retiree? Are you delightfully, joyfully serving Jesus? If so, what is it that keeps you doing that? What is it that keeps you serving Jesus when it's hard, when it seems worthless, when there's very little to show for your efforts? Neil and Rebecca, where are they? They're at the back. Commissioned this morning to go overseas, I guess a muddle of emotions, trepidation, excitement. But what is it that will keep you serving Jesus in language study? 
when it gets hard, when you can't learn those verbs. Or maybe in the future, when the church is much smaller than you'd hoped. Maybe when there's division. What is it that will keep you not just surviving, but thriving, joyfully, delightfully, pouring all out for Jesus and his work? In this morning's passage, we see the commissioning, not of Neil and Rebecca, but of Isaiah, to a very, very tough ministry, a ministry some 700 years before Jesus was born. And we'll focus on verses 1 to 8. But it's great that we have the whole passage read, because we see in the the end of the passage just what kind of ministry he had. Sent to preach God's word, but not a revival. Did you notice it in verse 10? People's ears will become dull, and their eyes will be closed. It'll be a failure, humanly speaking. And it's not just a short-term mission trip. Look at verse 11. Until the cities lie in ruin, until the Assyrians come in God's judgment and wipe out Israel, Isaiah is to carry on with this dreadful ministry. Many times he must have thought, why do I bother? Is it worth it? Keep preaching the same thing and no one listens. Well, surely part of the reason he kept going is this experience of the Lord. And my hope and prayer is that as we look at this experience of the Lord this morning, each of us will see our Lord afresh and will leave here full of joy, having seen him afresh, longing to serve him, echoing Isaiah's words, Lord, here am I, use me, send me to do whatever you wish. Well, there's four things I want us to see. And the first is this, a new vision of the Lord. A new vision of the Lord. Look down at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. It's a bit odd that Isaiah dates this from the death of a king. That's very, very unusual. I think the point is, the king has died, a king who'd had a long life, he'd been largely a good king. Who knows what turmoil will be unleashed in the future? It's a time of uncertainty. Guess a time that many of us can empathize with. But the point is clear. The king is dead. The the human king is dead, but the heavenly king is reigning. He's on his throne. And what a glorious throne it is. A glorious king sitting high and exalted. The train of his robe, the, the, the end of his robe, the hem of his robe, that tiniest part of his clothes fills the temple. And it's not just what Isaiah sees. Do you see verse 4? As those seraphs sing, the temple shakes. It's a kind of small earthquake. And the whole place is filled with smoke. It's an awesome scene. But who are we seeing? In one sense, obviously, we're seeing God. But more precisely, in John's Gospel, in chapter 12, we're told this is a vision of Jesus. There's a quote from this chapter of Isaiah. And then John comments, Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Friends, we have here a picture of the glory that the Son of God enjoyed before he came to earth. It's a picture of the glory that Jesus enjoys now, this morning, as he sits on that throne and rules the world. Those songs of the seraphs are the songs we joined in with as we praised him this morning. And look how he is praised. 
Verse 2, these fiery seraphs, fiery angels, each with two wings. And with two wings they cover their faces. With two they cover their feet. And with two they fly. I think there's a sense that this scene is so wonderful that even sinless angels cannot bear to look directly at it. They cover their eyes. And then they sing. Full of joy, they praise God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy. It could be an echo of the Trinity. Holy Father, Holy Son, Holy Spirit. More likely, it means the most holy. The way you describe something as most holy in Hebrew is to repeat it three times. But either way, we see the the very character of God here. One who is totally different, totally set apart, full of life, overflowing with love, in whom there is nothing wrong or evil. And we see the whole earth reflecting his glory, filled with his glory. One of the, I don't know whether to say joys, of going to Jerusalem this week was to be able to sit on six planes and land in very different airports. And it's amazing coming into land and you see the mountains or the hills and the rivers. And it's hard not to think what a wonderful creation this is. It's true, isn't it? Every wonderful vista proclaiming his glory. Not just the scenery, but the people too. So you come home and and meet your family, all made wonderfully in the image of God, reflecting his glory, and not just reflecting it. By rights, we should be giving that glory back to him. He who is seated on that throne. J.B. Phillips, Christian author, once wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. It's a great title, isn't it? Challenging title. Your God is Too Small. And isn't there just a danger that our view of God is too small? Jesus is not just Jesus, meek and mild. Not just Jesus, my mate. Jesus, the awesome, seated on the throne, high and lifted up, king of the world. If we have this kind of view, we'll long to keep serving him, won't we? But this glorious new vision of the Lord leads, secondly, to a new awareness of sin. A new awareness of sin. Look at verse 5. Isaiah cries out, Woe to me! I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. This woe is me is is much stronger. I'm going to die. I'm ruined. As he stands in the presence of the holy, he's so aware that he is anything but holy. I wonder if you've ever seen a picture of the White House in the winter. You know, the White House is an iconic building. I guess there's very few in the world who haven't seen a picture of it. But apparently when it snows, the White House with its white walls suddenly looks grey compared to the the fresh white snow. the, The imperfections on the walls show up. And I guess there's a sense that we too, living in a a morally grey world, can think that we're okay. We're kind of better than many people. There's always someone we could look down on and think we're okay. But compared to the brilliant, white holiness of God, our imperfections shine so brightly. We are anything but holy. 
No Christian who knows the holiness of God can be smug about our morality. And I guess as we read the Bible, as we see more of the Lord Jesus, we have that same experience as Isaiah. As we see Jesus' patience, how he's so kind and loving to all kinds of people, our impatience is shown up. As we see the way he forgives, our lack of forgiveness is revealed. Or think about his prayerful dependence, the Son of God, and yet he prays daily to his Father. And our self-reliance and lack of dependence is revealed. The more we know of Jesus, the more we know of his holiness, the more we realize we are not. That we are men and women of unclean lips. I wonder why does he speak of lips? Jesus elsewhere is clear that the lips reveal our hearts. Out of the overflow of the heart, the Bible says, Jesus says, the mouth speaks. And the stark reality is that unlike those seraphim who cry daily, holy, 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 we can sing that in here. And by the time we've made it to morning tea, made it to our cars in the car park, those same lips are knifing others. Is that not true? We quickly say, don't we, that wasn't the real me. It just slipped out. I was just a bit tired or a bit angry. I did that last week. I was in a meeting and I snapped at someone. And as I went to apologize to them, I was very quickly going to say, I'm so sorry, I'm so tired. That wasn't real me. I wouldn't normally do that. But actually the truth is, that is our hearts. That is my heart that slips out of our mouth. And though we, when we're less tired, maybe we can control it better. That is a good indicator of our hearts. We're men and women of unclean lips amongst a people of unclean lips. And as we see the Lord afresh, that becomes desperately clear, doesn't it? But the vision doesn't stop there. We're not meant to wallow in our sin and guilt. Wonderfully, this new awareness of sin leads thirdly to a new experience of forgiveness. A new experience of forgiveness. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Wonderfully, God, who's revealed Isaiah's sin, provides the solution, sending that seraph with a coal from the altar. Now, we don't know which altar that is. There are various altars in the temple. But it's not hard to imagine that that is quite possibly an altar on which animals were killed, where people would lay their hands on the animal, symbolically giving it their sin, and then it would be slain, blood shed for sinners. That coal quite possibly had been covered in blood of animals slain that morning. But whether it's the coal or the blood of an animal, we know that that can't possibly take away our sin. All of this points to the Lord Jesus. Because God didn't send an angel, did he? But his own son. And the Lord Jesus left this glory, left that throne, left the praise of angels to come to earth to be sent to a cross, to be laying on the altar of a cross, to endure God's holy fire of wrath, that the sins of the world might be dealt with, that our sin might be atoned for. Do you see, this points to the wonderful love of God, 
Friends, isn't that why Neil and Rebecca long to go to Cambodia? That those 97% Buddhists who don't know anything of this love, don't know anything of true forgiveness or atonement, might hear of that. And do we see the process? Isaiah sees the greatness of God. He sees his own sin. And then he sees the great joy of new forgiveness as uh, the holy God forgives him. A sin is atoned for, and it melts his heart. He loves the Lord. And that leads to the fourth thing, a new desire to serve. A new desire to serve. Verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Here we have God, the Trinity, speaking to one another. Who shall I send? And who, for, who will go for us? Plural. And as they discuss, they don't issue a diktat. That Isaiah, send him away. No, they look wonderfully for a volunteer to be involved in their mission. And Isaiah, captured by this vision, his heart melted, full of love, says, Here am I. Send me, will I do, to do your holy work? What a wonderful response that is. He has no idea what the task is. And yet, full of joy, he puts his hand up, send me. This isn't guilt or drudgery or trying to earn God's favor. No, this is knowing God loves him, knowing God is worthy and longing to do anything for him. I wonder, is that our response in the place God has put us? With the gifts God has given us, do we long to serve in this way, in our workplace, in our family, in our neighborhood as we seek to chatter the good news of Jesus? Do we do it joyfully? Are we looking for ways to serve the Lord? Are we saying, Lord, send me, take my life, take my money, take my time, use it as you will for your kingdom? It might just be that there are some here who, like the Dunbars, feel prompted to give themselves full time to God's work. Friends, don't wait for a voice. Isaiah is a wonderful model of uh, hearing the call of God, but I don't think we can say that everyone who will serve the Lord full time will hear a voice like this. Some will, many won't. But if God is giving you that desire to serve him full time, or if others are saying to you, maybe you have those gifts, do come and chat to one of us about that. We'd we love to see more workers thrown out, thrust out into the harvest field. Might just be some here whom God is prompting. But I wonder if others of us find our desire to serve has waned. Maybe when we're a new Christian, we, we felt like Isaiah, I'll do anything for God, and yet it's slightly gone away. I wonder if we've lost one of the aspects of this vision of God. Perhaps we've lost sight of God's glory. Maybe in our busyness, our career has become more important. Or our uh, focusing on building and buying a home. Or, or our bucket list. All good things. But consider them against the glory of God. The building of his eternal kingdom. They're all pretty small ambitions. Maybe we need to look up and see God afresh. And get with his great kingdom building plan. Take up that great ambition. Or maybe there's something we feel 
it's beneath us to serve. If we're asked to serve at the front, to sing or to, to read the Bible or something like that, then we're happily there. But uh, we feel a little bit too important to do some of the more humble, hidden jobs. Or maybe we need to look afresh and see our sin. We're unworthy. It's a great privilege even to clean the toilets in God's kingdom. Or maybe we're on the opposite end of the spectrum. Maybe actually we feel, how can I possibly serve? Little me, how could I be trusted? Am I really loved enough to serve in this way? Well, friends, do we see God sent his own son to love you by giving his life for you. You are more loved, more trusted than you imagine. He longs to, to see you serve. Well, friends, perhaps we've lost our desire to serve. Let the gospel, let this great gospel melt our hearts. Because if we grasp God's greatness, if we see our sin, the wretchedness of our sin, but the wonder of forgiveness, we'll long to serve. Here I am, send me, will be our cry. Love to end our time with the story of Dr. Helen Rosevere. I'm sure many of you know this story. Helen Rosevere led a privileged life in England. She left a promising medical career in the 1950s to travel as a missionary to the Congo. In the next 10, 11 years, she set up various hospitals and training centers. But after about 11 years, she was taken prisoner by the Congolese rebel forces. She was imprisoned for about five months. And she spoke of the time when the government soldiers came to her bungalow in the middle of the night as they ransacked it. They grabbed her, they beat her, th threw her to the floor, they kicked out her front teeth. And then two soldiers, two officers, dragged her away and raped her. They brought her outside again. They tied her to a tree in the compound. And as the soldiers gathered at her feet, laughing and mocking, they went back into her bungalow and, and began rifling through her things. There they found a handwritten manuscript of the way the Lord had worked in her life in those 11 years in Congo. And the soldiers brought it out. They threw it on the floor in front of her, set fire to it. And as it was going up in smoke, Helen Roosevelt said through clenched teeth, is it worth it? Is it really worth it? Eleven years of my life poured out in selfless service for the African people, and now this, Lord. And as she was thinking those things, she sensed God saying to her, Helen, my daughter Helen, you've been asking the wrong question. The question is not, is it worth it? The question is, am I worthy? Am I, the Lord Jesus, who gave his life for you, worthy for you to make this kind of sacrifice for me in that moment her eyes welled up with tears she said god broke her heart she looked up into heaven into the face of jesus and said oh lord jesus yes it is worth it for you are worthy a few months later she was released she went back to england but then after a year and a half Helen returned to the Congo. She assisted in rebuilding the nation, uh, the people who treated her so cruelly, helped build more hospitals. Why did she do that? Not because she is great, not because she's a wonderful servant, 
but because she knew she had a great God who sits enthroned on, in the heavens and who left them to come and serve her. She knew that Jesus was worthy and so she longed to serve. Oh Lord, here I am. Send me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would write your glory. You would show us, each one of us, your glory. That we would leave here remembering that. That we would long to serve you. That we'd remember that we're wretchedly sinful and wonderfully forgiven. And so in love, this week, this year, for the rest of our days, whether we're here or in Cambodia or somewhere else, long to serve you and to build your kingdom. Here I am. Send me. May that be the cry of each one of us. For Jesus' sake. Amen.